You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hey, it's good to, uh, good to see you here. There are some of you that I know well, and there are a lot of you I really don't know well. Um, so I should tell you just a little bit about myself first. Uh, my name is Gary Hopkins, and I know Thad told you a little bit. My wife Judy and I moved to Pullman about just about 11 years ago, and for almost 10 and a half of those years, we've been a part of the real life family. So this is our church home. We love being here. Uh, we came to Pullman to start a ministry called Young Life College. Uh, just to get a frame of reference, how many of you are familiar with Young Life in any? Oh yeah, okay. Well, for us, that means we're focused on students at the at WSU campus, and we're just starting up University of Idaho again this fall. But our job, if you want to call it a job, is we get to hang out with uh, college students every day, all day. Uh, we get to walk with them. We get to see amazing things that God's doing in their life and be a part of that process. So I'll just make one shameless plug. If uh, any of you out there are thinking, hmm, working with college students, wonder if, wonder what that would look like for me. Um, we would love to chat. We would love to have more adults that want to be connected in what we're doing with, with college students, such a huge part of this community. And whether it's uh, maybe mentoring a student or a leader, maybe it's helping lead a small group, or maybe it's being part of our leader team, we'd love to, to chat with you. So um, that aside, it's advertisement's over. Um, I'm honored to be asked to be part of this sermon series, Forever Changed. I've loved hearing different people's lives as we've encountered them the last few weeks. A very diverse group. We had... Uh, an outcast Samaritan woman at the well. We've had a very religious Pharisee, Nicodemus. We had Peter's story, fisherman. We've had Paul, zealous uh, Jewish fella. And just an incredibly diverse group of people. But what stands out to me is what they all have in common is whenever they get face-to-face with Jesus, whenever we get face-to-face with Jesus, it changes our lives. And uh, today I want to start with another character, character that some of us may be familiar with by the name of Zacchaeus. Uh, so let's, uh, let's jump right in. It's found, uh, the story's found in Luke 19, and I'm just going to start with the first four verses. And it goes like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. I think we'll find if we look closely at this story, um, well, let's give some background first. First of all, Jericho. This, this story is taking place in the town of Jericho. What do we know about Jericho? Uh, Jericho, some of you may recognize the name, as the first town that the nation of Israel conquered when they entered the Promised Land the walled city that all fell down after several days. Uh, That may be your reference to Jericho. In this day and age, in Jesus' time, Jericho is really more of kind of a resort town. It is located about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and maybe more significantly, it's about 3,100 feet in elevation below Jerusalem. So there are times in the New Testament you'll read along and it'll say, Jesus will say to his disciples, hey, let us go up to Jerusalem. <laughs> he meant, let's go up to Jerusalem. Um, got some of my family here this weekend, a couple of grandkids, and we, uh, we hiked Kamiak Butte yesterday. That was, that was exciting. Um, 
But to give you an idea, 15 miles, 3,100 feet in elevation, that would be like going from, walking from Colfax to Kamiak Butte Summit and then doubling that elevation because it's only about 1,500 feet above Colfax to Kamiak Butte. So you'd have to go about twice that. Um, well, we climbed Kamiak Butte. Well, we drove up to Kamiak Butte and we walked about a half a mile up to the lookout. Uh, I was exhausted. I mean, maybe there's a chariot Uber or something back in those days. But just, I mean, think about what that would look like. But that's, that's really, I digress. Um, let's look again. What Jericho is known for in this age is it was really a resort town. It'd be kind of like the Palm Springs of that desert area. It's the area where people would go to have their second home, maybe their lavish first home, uh, a natural oasis in the desert. It's where everybody wanted to go, kind of Palm Springs. Uh, people that would work in Jerusalem, Pharisees, Roman officials, they would have uh, their second homes in, in Jericho. Uh, Herod was said to have three palaces in Jericho. Of course, you don't need three palaces. Um, but I, I say that just to say, to get a feel for what Jericho may have felt like. This is a place of high reputation. Um, so with that, we look at the story of, of Zacchaeus. Well, who is Zacchaeus? And Jesus, or he's described in Luke, Luke describes him as a chief tax collector. Uh, the only time that the term chief tax collector is found in the New Testament that I could find. Lots of uh, connections to tax collectors, but he's the only one that's mentioned as a chief tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Well, during this time, Rome is occupying all of Israel and they wanted to extract taxes from all the people. That's how Rome became so lavish. Um, well, they enlisted always Jewish people to extract taxes from their own people. Uh, and it was a pretty harsh tax system. Uh, you get taxed for literally everything, for being a person, to, uh, to travel, to business, um, virtually trade, sales tax, property tax, everything was taxed. And you would be spending, even as a normal person in Israel, somewhere between 50 and 80% of your money would go to the Roman government. So just imagine how they felt about those that were extracting taxes that were all Jewish. They're collaborating with the enemy. They're helping Rome to oppress their own people. And how did they make their money? Well, there weren't tax tables. They didn't publish, here's how much you owe. Uh, they would simply tell the tax collectors, here's what you have to collect. Whatever you do over that is yours. So maybe they had to collect 100 denarii. And they said, well, let's make it 110. That's how we get rich. And everybody knew that. Everybody knew the system. So here they see Zacchaeus, and he's a chief tax collector. He's got, I don't know how many under him, but he's got a number of tax collectors that are under him. He had to actually bid for his job from the Roman governor. He had to have connections because that was a coveted spot to be the chief tax collector. Um, so everybody knew that his three-chariot garage came from their taxes. Uh, very wealthy. That was kind of an understatement. He was wealthy. Just imagine extreme wealth. That was Zacchaeus. So, as we turn to the story, um, I would say this. If we look closely at this, I think we'll find that Zacchaeus was not just curious to see who Jesus was. Not like the circus coming to town. Hey, I want to see what this is like. I want to get a good spot on the street. 
I would suggest that Zacchaeus was desperate not just to see who Jesus was, but he was desperate to encounter Jesus. And why do I say that? Well, let's look again at verse four. It says, so he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Well, I highlighted there, he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore fig tree. If you're an adult male in that culture, one of the things you did not do was run. That was just kind of a shameful thing. If you want to bring shame on yourself, just run. Uh, no one would do that in public, certainly not in this environment in Jericho. He's a man of reputation. He's got tax collectors under him. They're all watching him run ahead and going, what is he doing? And then they watch him climb into a tree. Again, an, as an adult male in that culture, you would never climb a tree. But he does both those things because I believe he's desperate to be put in a position to encounter who Jesus is. Where'd that come from? Well, it reminds me of the story in, in Mark 2 uh, where a bunch of friends, four friends, brought their paralytic friend to see Jesus. Um, not in your notes, it's an added bonus. But um, in Mark 2, there's these four guys that have their friend on a mat and they heard that Jesus was coming to town. So they cart him off and they're thinking to me, oh, we can get there, get him in front of Jesus and something's going to happen. We just know it. They get to the house and it's packed. I mean, packed to where people are out the door. There is absolutely no way that they're going to get into that house. So you'd think, well, maybe we'll come back tomorrow. Maybe we'll find him another day. But no, their attitude was, we will do whatever it takes to get our friend in front of Jesus. So they went around, they climbed up, they started tearing off the roof. I don't know what that looked like from down below, but all of a sudden the roof starts, the tiles start to come apart, stuff's falling down. Maybe they had to adjust. Oh, he's over here. Let's go over here. They moved down a little ways, tore up. And all this time Jesus is talking to this packed house. Then they took their friend who had no say in the conversation. He couldn't actually resist much. They tied a rope around him and just lowered him. I'm just, it's like, okay, there he is. Knowing that if we can just get him in front of Jesus, something's going to happen. And sure enough, Jesus' response is fascinating because he looks up at them and he says, seeing their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And he heals him and he goes on his way. I mention that story because I think that's the attitude of Zacchaeus. He's desperate to be in front of Jesus. Um, maybe, maybe the day before, uh, if you look at the story the day before, it's a blind man outside of Jericho. Maybe this happened the day before. Zacchaeus may know it well. But there's a blind man that's yelling at Jesus. He wants to get his attention. His disciples and others are telling him to calm down. This is Jesus. Show some respect. Don't yell. And the guy just keeps yelling. Until finally Jesus says, what's, what's the commotion? What's this blind guy? Have him come over. Come over. Face to face with Jesus. He says, what can I do for you? He says, I want to be, I want to, I want to see. I want to be healed. So he does. He heals him. And I wonder if Zacchaeus is thinking, if you're a blind man, you're cursed of God. There's no way. But Jesus healed him. Jesus responded to him. Maybe, maybe he'll respond to me. I wonder if Matthew, the tax collector, was actually under Zacchaeus. The tax collector, we remember, that becomes a disciple that Jesus walks by his tax collection booth and just simply says, come follow me. And Matthew took off, changed his life. I wonder if Zacchaeus is thinking, wow, 
Maybe he knew him. Maybe he talked to him. Tell me what that was about. So I say that background because I can just imagine that's what Zacchaeus is doing. He is setting himself up. He is going to, there's no way Jesus is getting by him. He's going to have to encounter him. So that's where we find that. Um, question would be, well, how desperate are we to encounter Jesus? Do we believe if we do whatever it takes to put ourselves in a position in front of him that he's going to do something? When I was a uh, senior in high school, I wasn't, didn't know Jesus, didn't know who he was. I'd gone to church a little bit as a kid, um, but not enough to know who Jesus was. And as a senior in high school, I went to my first Young Life Club, which if anybody's been to a Young Life Club, it's kind of a unique thing. Uh, was at a house just up the street, which is probably why I went, just curious. Went into this house and it was packed, kind of like the story in Mark 2. People kind of all over the place, 50, 60 high school kids, having a great time, yelling, singing, having fun. I'm thinking, this is interesting. Um, and then they, at the end, this guy gets up and talks about this guy, Jesus, in a way that I'd never heard. And I, about the only thing I remember from that night, 40-some years ago, was Jesus is all about relationships and he wants to know you personally. And I just thought, if that's true, if that's who he is, then I gotta, I gotta know more about this guy. So for the rest of that year, I adjusted my schedule. I made sure that Monday night I was in a room in some house because I wanted to hear more about this guy. And then as the second semester came along, found out there was this camp up in Canada that we could go to. It's gonna cost some money, but I, I gotta be there. I raised money, did what I could, joined some friends, because I believed if I could just be there, I'm gonna encounter this guy. And that week changed my life forever. It's probably what I, why I continue to do uh, what I do today. Um, so, the moment. I love this next little section here because this is, this is what it's all positioned for. Jesus coming down the, the path. Let's read just the first part of verse five. I want to stop it here, kind of an interesting pause. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. I just want to leave it there. He goes on. We'll get to that. But imagine just that much. He stops, he looks up, Zacchaeus. Now you're probably, I'm just guessing here, but the entire crowd is watching this. They've watched Zacchaeus humiliate himself, brought shame to himself by running, climbing a tree. They already hate him. And he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. He knows who he is. Oh my gosh, he knows who he is. So he must know what he does. He must know what he's done. And they're probably thinking, call him out. Put him down, put him in his place. Lay into him. I mean, the crowd's probably just can't wait for Jesus to knock this guy down. And Zacchaeus is thinking, he knows my name. He knows who I am. He knows what I've done. <laughs> I got nowhere to go. What's, what's going to happen? And then the next part of that, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately, for today I must stay at your house. So he came down at once, welcomed him gladly. All the people started to mutter, he's gone to be a guest in the house of a sinner. Um, again, you've got Zacchaeus, oh my gosh, that's all he was waiting for. He's in the right place, 
will Jesus accept who I am? He does. Not only that, but he wants to go stay at his house. I'm all in immediately. I, I think he was ready to do that before. All he needed was that acceptance, and he was down that tree. But the crowd is bewildered because they're wondering, wait a minute. That's not what we were expecting at all. I doubt there was anybody in that crowd that was thinking, Zacchaeus, oh gosh, I hope he makes him, I hope he changes Zacchaeus. I hope he makes him a great guy. Wouldn't that be awesome? We would like to think so. But I'm guessing if I was in that crowd, I'd be right there with them. Oh yeah, you know who he is. Um, maybe we have people in our own lives that we wonder, does Jesus know who they are, what they've done? I know who they are. Maybe Jesus would tear into them. That'd be kind of fun. That'd be great. Um, a lot of times we have a choice in our own surroundings whether we're going to play the part of judgment or whether we play the part of grace. But I love this story because for Zacchaeus, he's set free because all he needed was the acceptance of Jesus. Um, the other uh, verse that it reminds me of is John 1.14 where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, um, describing Jesus. And I love that because he's not satisfied with just connecting with us. Uh, in the message version, it says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I love that picture because that's who Jesus is. He wants to come into your house. He wants to invade your world. He wants to be part of everything that you're about. So it's not just that Jesus wants to accept us, but he wants to engage us wherever we are in our, in our own home. Um, well, then we go a little farther and we get the response. What does this do to Zacchaeus? And the next verse here in uh, 8 to 10 says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, I should probably put that in context because this is probably happening in his house unless it says he stood up. I don't think he fell out of the tree. He had to stand up. He's probably at his home. He's probably having dinner. Maybe he's got other tax collectors around him, maybe some Roman officials. Middle of this scene, there's Jesus. And in the middle of dinner, maybe, Zacchaeus stands up and says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Wow. And if I've cheated anybody, if, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. First, I, I look at that and I think, well, of course he's cheated, but maybe not. Maybe Zacchaeus is actually, and he's a chief tax collector, but he, not, he may not be collecting taxes personally. He's benefiting from other tax collectors that are doing the dirty work, if you will. But that part's not important. It's his response that is important. Um, I give half my possessions to the poor. That's extravagant response. Jesus never asked him to do that. Jesus never addressed his wealth. And if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay back four times the amount. That's huge. Where do you get that number? Well, I looked up a couple uh, references in uh, Leviticus 6. It says this. If, and this is God talking to Moses about, here's what you need to do to establish the law. If they cheat their neighbor, they must make restitution in full, at a fifth of the value, and give it to all back to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. So God's provision was, hey, if you cheat somebody, you pay them back full plus 20%. Zacchaeus made it 400%. Again, it's, it's, it's not the number as much as in the extravagance, that that's what, 
connection to Jesus will do to him. I wonder where he got that, though. Um, four times the amount. Maybe Zacchaeus knows his Bible. In uh, Exodus 22, it says, whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. I don't know if this is Luke just kind of throwing this in here. Maybe it's, maybe it's Zacchaeus just identifying himself because at the end of that story, Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to save, seek and save the lost as a shepherd, seeking and saving the lost sheep. I wonder if Zacchaeus is identifying with maybe those that he makes his money off of as being abused sheep. I'm going to pay back four times because that's the cost of a sheep. Um, I don't know, but I find that kind of fun, kind of fascinating. Um, well, to me, the real key about this response is the order is so important and something that we tend to get mixed up. The order is this. Zacchaeus responds to Jesus and then his life has changed. And there's a lot of us, uh, others that think, if I want to have my life changed by Jesus, I need to change some things and then maybe Jesus will accept me. Or for those of us maybe that already have a relationship with Jesus, we're thinking there's lots of areas in my life that need changing. And we make the mistake of again thinking, I need to change those things so that Jesus will impact me. We get it backwards where we're really powerless to change anything about ourselves. Our job is to put ourselves in a position where Jesus can change us. Um, well, last thing I want to touch on is the uh, topic of wealth. Um, wealth and riches does not get a very good rep in the, in the gospel, certainly in Luke. Uh, there are four references I have here. Um, virtually every story about wealth or riches is negative. And I wonder why is that? And I think I'll preface my conclusion here by saying, I think it's not because of wealth in itself, it's just because we abuse it or we don't understand it or we don't treat it the way it's meant to be. Um, and here are four examples of, of that. Luke 6.24 is a sermon on the mountain. Jesus says at one point, woe to you who are rich, for you already have your comfort. Not a great testament to riches. And then Luke 8, um, which I'm referencing, excuse me, uh, Mark, because I like the wording better, but it's a sower in the seeds parable, which is a sower of the farmer that goes out and sows the seed, which represents the word of God all over. And some of it falls on certain ground, and Jesus later explains the parable and says, these soils that the seed falls on represent different hearts. And at one point he says, there's some seed that fell on weedy ground, uh, thorny ground. That represents somebody who gets carried away by the concerns of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and it chokes the plant, and it becomes unfruitful. So again, that's the potential that wealth can have is to distract us and deceive us into thinking that's the goal. That it's, is it a tool or is it something that takes control of us? Then uh, Luke 12, another story about a farmer who has an abundant crop. Maybe he's had several good years. And it's just kind of funny how it puts it. He says, and he tells himself, self, build bigger barns. That way you'll have abundance. You'll have enough stored up for many, many years. And then eat, drink, and be merry. 
And God steps in and says, that's foolish. Because tonight, your soul is demanded. Who's going to benefit from your wealth now? And then Jesus adds this tag at the end. He says, so it is with anyone who builds up treasure for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Is wealth being used just to build ourselves up, or is wealth being used as a tool for God? And then finally, Luke 18, the rich young ruler. It's, it's a chapter, maybe one of the stories just before this story in, in Luke. I love this. It may have been Jericho. I mean, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. Maybe he just lives in Jericho. Um, but rich, young ruler. He's got money, he's got youth, he's got power. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I do to get eternal life? I've got everything else. And Jesus has this conversation with him about following the commandments. And, and this guy says, well, I've done all that. I've been a good guy. And Jesus says, well, there's just one thing you lack. Go and sell what you've got. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And the guy, it says, he went away very sad because he was very wealthy. So again, it's not the wealth. It's that he couldn't let go of the wealth. He couldn't let go of the thing that gave him security. That's what got in the way of having a relationship with Jesus was his wealth. For Zacchaeus, he couldn't wait to get rid of his wealth because he'd rather have that relationship with Jesus, whatever it takes. Um, so that's a picture of, of wealth. Um, the other thing I wonder... I'd like to know two years down the road where Zacchaeus is, just my own curiosity. So a lot of these stories, you kind of have this encounter and then you just kind of wonder. Um, I don't know if Jesus ever said any more or said, hey, you should try being a carpenter. I don't know. Work for me. But what I find fascinating is he, in Luke 3.12, I think it's up there. Do we have that? Yes, this is John the Baptist baptizing and a lot of different groups of people come to him to be baptized. And it says, even tax collectors came to him wanting to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And John the Baptist says, don't collect more than what you're required to, he told them. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it would be awesome if two years down the road you find Zacchaeus still being the chief tax collector. But he's established a different system. A system where people aren't as oppressed. Maybe a system where the wealth that's created is redistributed, where they're blessing the people around them and not oppressing them. Um, that would be a great ending uh, because it's not the wealth that's the issue, it's what we do with it. Um, so we're gonna move right now into a time of communion. So for those that are serving, love to have you get that started. Um, we have an open table here at Real Life, which simply means if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake with us in communion. We ask that you hold the elements till the end, and we'll do that, do that together. Um, let's go through just a couple of things that we can pull out of this story as we look ahead for our own lives. Number one, if there's nothing else you get out of this talk, hang on to this one. Position is everything. How desperate are we, how determined are we to put ourselves in a position to encounter Jesus knowing that he's going to do something in our lives. Um, for me, the struggle isn't so much the aha moment like Zacchaeus had. For me, the struggle is, is more just the day-to-day -day routine, the day-to-day -day opportunity or missed opportunity to encounter Jesus face-to-face -face each day. 
having that time with him, praying, reading, uh, because I, if I really understand it, that's, that's as much an encounter with Jesus every day that means that every day he begins to change my life. And I just want to give you a quick uh, analogy. When I was uh, in June, I had the great pleasure of going on assignment at that same camp that I gave my life to Jesus 47 years ago. And uh, my job was, again, with college students. There were 40 college students from like 16 states around the country that had volunteered a month of their summer to serve to make it a, an amazing week for high school students. And uh, my job, I got to hang out with them and supervise that group. Well, Malibu is... is an unbelievable place. If you haven't been there, it's one of the most gorgeous places on earth. It's up kind of north of Vancouver, and it's uh, kind of up the fjords. So the water is not like ocean, or out in the ocean water. It's a lot of times just very calm, like lake water. And you're sitting there on this incredibly gorgeous setting on the ocean, and above you and around you, 360 degrees, you're surrounded by five, six, 8,000 foot glacial peaks. Here it is in the middle of summer. Um, well, the end of the first week that we were there, progressively each night we could see the moon was getting fuller and fuller. And uh, it's like I've been there enough times. And it's one of the most gorgeous times at Malibu is when the full moon is out. When that last day when it's got the most brilliance. Oh, there it is. This is like 10.30 at night. And the moon is now at its fullest. And it rose up over the mountains and it just lights up everything around it. It brings out not only the beauty in the moon, you can't see it here, but if that was a more accurate picture, you'd see a lot of detail in the moon, which happens only when it's really full. But more importantly, it, it reflects and lights up the surroundings. Why do I say that? Well, because that moon has absolutely no light of its own. That moon is not lighting up anything on of its own. The beauty that the moon displays and the beauty that the moon showers on its surroundings is only because it's fully facing the sun. And I just think that's a great analogy to us and our relationship with God, with our relationship with Jesus. The more we face him, the more we get to reflect him. The more we spend time in the right position face to face with him, um, the more not only does our, what we're created to be, um, get displayed, but we get to impact and light up our surroundings. I just think that's a great picture of, of position. Um, the second thing, second implication, how are we dealing with areas in our lives that need to change? And I mentioned before, and I, again, I just want to emphasize that the order is everything. As you look at your life and you look at things that you'd like to see change, don't attack those things. Um, do everything you can to be in the right position and allow Jesus to change those things. I'll let you fill in the blank on what that looks like, but so many times we make the mistake of just wanting to change our behavior, and we're powerless. We're powerless to change ourselves. Um, our job is to be in the right place. With me, again, when I, at that time at Malibu, when I said, I want to I follow Jesus, I want to follow this guy. This is what I've been waiting for. Um, I had one big problem. I had one of the f worst mouths of anybody in my class at Jolie Ferris High School in 1972. I really, uh, I had a hard time finishing a sentence without a swear word. 
And I remember dealing with, well, I really want this relationship. I want to be with Jesus, but what do I do about this mouth? I've got to change that before I respond. And that kind of kept me from initially saying yes. Fortunately, my leader talked to me and he said, that's not your job. That's his job. Your job is to say yes. Your job is to respond to him. He'll change the things that need to change. So I, I just throw that out there as, again, another uh, way we can deal with that. Third implication is in wealth, is money a tool or a tyrant in our lives? Um, are there ways of getting better control of our wealth so that it is a tool of blessing and not something that controls us? Uh, two things I would just throw out there to consider. Uh, tithing would be number one. That tithing, I think, is a great opportunity to begin to loosen our grip on wealth. It becomes less and less controlling of us. And actually then, as we tithe, tithing is simply beginning to exercise what it means to be generous, what it means to see God's wealth bless and impact other people. Uh, and the second thing, related in some ways, is the whole idea of debt. Uh, Judy and I have been working hard the last couple of years just to eliminate debt in our life because debt controls our finances. We can't control our finances if we've got much debt. Um, we can't respond when Jesus wants us to fill a need. We can't be as generous as we want to because debt controls what we're doing. So I, I just throw that out there for you to consider. What, what, is, what role does wealth play in our life? How do we get control of it? And have its hold on us be less. So we're going to go ahead with communion, and I think it's a great segue because communion, again, is a reminder that what we have from Jesus is because of what he's done, not because of anything we've done. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this. The same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the covenant in the new blood, new covenant. As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you remember me. Let's remember him. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you've done, you were desperate to do everything to reach us. And it's your death and resurrection that makes it possible for us to live the life that you designed for us. Help us to keep that in mind as we think about what it means to move forward with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.